tell you something I was taught as a Paulist student, which is to never say that a particular gospel passage is hard to preach on. Father Paul Husing explained this to me in Boston the one summer I was there. That would be like when you go out for dessert and the server at the ice cream shop whines because you picked the hardest flavor to scoop. Paul's wisdom has been passed on. He's now the director of formation for the Paulus. But I'm still going to violate that rule and tell you I have been dreading preaching on this passage for years. I'm, I'm a fairly newly ordained priest. This is my first time taking a crack at the passage called Martha and Mary. My first problem with it is I'm of a certain age that whenever I hear Jesus chide Martha, I think of that episode of the Brady Bunch when Chan says, oh, it's Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> but the second reason is much more serious. It almost, Luke is the gospel of women, we say, but this, this passage, it seems as if Jesus is almost pitting Martha against Mary. So th- there's another good thing that I learned in the seminary, though. I read a passage um, by a Lutheran a theologian named Carol Schluter who dreamed of a day when male preachers would read the commentaries of female scripture scholars as much as female preachers are expected to read the writings of male theologians. So, I emailed uh, at the beginning of this year uh, the one female scripture professor I had. She teaches at Wesley uh, Seminary at American University, uh, Sharon Ringy, and we talked and she suggested to look at the works of Barbara Reed, who's a, a Dominican nun who teaches at the Chicago Theological Union. And she wrote this book called Choosing the Better Part, Women in the Gospel of Luke. I've been using this a lot this year, but I need to read you this first sentence from her chapter on Martha and Mary. She says, The tensions embedded in this story raise more questions and interpretive problems than any other Lucan text involving women. So, I don't know where we're going to end up, but I'm citing Sister Barbara as my theological, sensible resource for wherever we go. Most of the homilies I've heard on this passage just don't seem right to me. They seem either to miss the point of the passage or to reach conclusions in conflict with what we know about Jesus and his teachings. So, with Sister Barbara Reed as my scripture scholar, let's start by examining four traditional, less than satisfactory ways that people have tried to explain this passage. Tradition number one. Mary and Martha represent the two poles of Christian discipleship, contemplation and action. Both contemplation and action are essential to discipleship, preachers say. And that's definitely true. But then preachers go on to say that Jesus indicates that contemplation is more important than action. It's, quote, the better part. Well, that's pretty upsetting for anybody who has a lot of responsibilities. Does that mean that it's unholy to earn a living or to care for our families? Tradition number two. No, Jesus isn't promoting contemplation over active service. We need to consider this passage in combination with the passage that comes right before it, the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan story, in that, Jesus calls us to care for and serve one another, in contrast to this week's praise for contemplation. 
But Sister Barbara points out that there's really no hint that Luke intended the two stories to be compared and contrasted. We read them on separate weeks at Mass, so the Church obviously doesn't see them as intimately connected. Tradition three. The problem is with the specifics of Martha's actions. Jesus is chiding her for making an elaborate meal. She could have ordered takeout so that she could have spent her time sitting next to Mary at the feet of Jesus. Well, that ignores the Middle Eastern culture of hospitality that endures to this day. Conventions demanded that guests be treated lavishly. Tradition four. This story demonstrates Jesus' groundbreaking treatment of women, treating them as equals to men. Jesus was radical in allowing a woman to be taught as Mary is taught in this passage, they say. Jesus was radical in speaking to women who were not his relatives. Jesus was radical in visiting their house. Well, actually, no. Sister Barbara cites plenty of evidence that some first century Judean Jewish women were already receiving this kind of respect and dignity. So what is this story about? I'm not sure. But I'll offer you some facts and then I will draw my own conclusion. Through the centuries, Christians have held more reverence for Martha than for Mary. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus declares that he is the resurrection and the life, it is Martha who declares, Yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Mary stays at home. In the Middle Ages, Martha was sometimes depicted as slaying dragons or praying with Jesus in Gethsemane while Mary had her nose in a book. Father Ron Franco pointed out to me at dinner, there's a feast day in the calendar for Martha. There is not for Mary. Pope Francis lives in a Vatican hotel named for St. Martha. Sister Barbara points out that in Aramaic, the name Martha is the feminine equivalent of Lord. The Greek word for Martha's serving is diakonia, the same verb Luke uses throughout the Acts of the Apostles for describing Christian leadership. As disciples, we're all called to both contemplation and service. But before we can be of service to the gospel, we need to spend some time contemplating God's word. Could it be possible that Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, you are capable of so much already. But what Mary needs right now is to sit and listen to the word of God. That's my interpretation of this passage. So now, let's apply it to our lives here and now. First of all, I know we have some people from soccer camp visiting us. Are there any other first-time visitors here? I know the people sitting right in front of them. We have a couple visitors. Show of hands for newcomers. Okay, well, if you didn't raise your hand, then you get to listen to the rest of the homily. Okay, I'm sorry for those who are visiting. It's, this is really directed towards the regulars, but I've been told that by people last night who were visiting that it applied to them at their home parish too. Okay, the rest of you, I have news for you. You who think you still have a lot to learn. Well, guess what? We all have lots to learn, but you've learned enough already that I can confidently put up this slide. We're all Martha. 
Each of us who comes to church regularly is ready to serve as Martha did, not to remain solely in contemplation as Mary did. And part of our Christian service is helping those who are just beginning to contemplate the Word of God. Who at Blessed John 23rd Parish might be those people, those just beginning to contemplate the Word of God? Well, most likely, the newcomers. And guess what? Each of the four weekends in August, we expect to have newcomers at every Mass. Athletes and RAs will be here the first weekend. Upperclassmen will return the second. Freshmen will be here on campus for the third weekend, but they will have just gotten here, so a lot of them probably won't find us until the fourth weekend. <laughs> so here it comes. For the month of, I, I'm about to reprise a homily from last summer. For the month of August, I challenge you to serve the new contemplatives of the UT community by giving up your usual chairs in this room. <laughs> Last year, I put up diagrams and explained the psychology. This year, I'll make it simple. For the month of August, I want you to sit as far away as possible from this spot. <laughs> I love it when you laugh when I'm challenging you. <laughs> People who are new are very uncomfortable coming forward to have to search for a seat. Now, a couple of the regulars at this mass who sit in the back over here are away this week, so the people who came in late lucked out. A lot of you must understand that because you apparently are uncomfortable sitting up front, too. Last year, I imagined six reasons that you may prefer sitting near the door. Let's review those on the next slide. <laughs> I'm serving during the Mass, so I need to be sitting near the collection baskets. I feel better when I can see what everyone else is doing. I have small children, so I need to sit near the exit if they act up. I have an extremely small bladder, so I need to be able to make a quick exit to the restroom. I don't like it when Father Rich wanders the aisles. I'm afraid he's going to call on me. And six, I just feel more comfortable sitting back here. Well, last summer after that homily, I learned that some of you really love your chairs. I'm about to show you three additional reasons that you've given me for sitting near the door. And there was a fourth one that somebody reminded me she had given me too, but it's not on the slide last night she reminded me. Before you see the slide, I just want to say, I'm not sure if I want you to laugh or to be horrified at these. I'm packing heat. I need to sit near the back to defend everyone in case a gunman enters. I'm new to the South. I did not see that one coming. Isn't it rude to allow the newcomers to sit in the back? What kind of message are we sending? The people who come in late aren't newcomers. They're just lazy. I'm not going to make it easy for them to sneak in. They should be humiliated by having to come to the front. I'm going to mention Fernanda Dash. She said last night when there was a campaign to ask people to give money for the chair, she bought one in honor of her mother, and it's a chair that's right in the back there, she says. <laughs> and I said, I moved that chair up front. <laughs> but let me just say about these, reasons two and three can't both be true. They're in conflict with each other. 
Let me offer you two additional observations. First, in this space, you can't see whether a chair is empty until you're standing at it. For example, this chair next to Tom here is empty. You can only see that if you come all the way in here and get to about here. So, again, the rule of sitting away from the door means that whatever section you're in, sit to this end of it, okay, or that end of it away from the door. I've tried to help seat people at crowded masses, and you really can't see which chairs are empty when they're in the middle or on the far end. And second of all, the other observation would be, if everybody does this, then you're all going to know who are the newcomers and the returners. So it will be the people who weren't here this week. So next month, when people come in and sit there, you're going to know that they're the new people and you can exercise your ministry as Martha. You can go over to them and say, we're glad to see you. Would you like to come over and sit with us for Mass? And please note, saying the phrase, we're glad to see you, covers people who are new, people who are returning, people who have been here for years, but you just don't know them. It is a very safe greeting that isn't going to get you in trouble. We're glad to see you. Today, our second reading was from Colossians. The author rejoiced in his sufferings for the sake of the Christian community. For the weekends of August, can you sacrifice for the sake of the other members of the body of Christ?